Hi, I'm your host, Michael Gilbo, here to let you know about a new and innovative theater major, the BA in Theater and Business Arts at the University of Providence. Get the education and experience you need as a theater artist and the business acumen to succeed in your career. Visit broadwaybullet.com and stay tuned to the end of the program for more info. Now, enjoy the show. Welcome to Broadway Bullet, Volume 134, and I am here at the TKTS booth talking with Derek Amore, who is currently starring in Chicago. How you doing? I'm good. <laughs> so, uh, how do you like the, your role in Chicago? Uh, it's, it's great. You know, it's a different experience for me. It's something new. You know, it's my first time on Broadway, but um, I think it definitely won't be my last. <laughs> Oh, you're lying. You're here at the front of the line in the tickets booth. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I am. <laughs> you looking forward to the show? Yeah, I'm looking forward to it, yeah. Um, Brian McKnight just joined the cast, so I'm looking forward to seeing him in it. Yes. All right. Well, I hope you enjoy the show. we got a great load of stuff going on on Broadway Bullet this week. We've got uh, interviews with uh, the whole entire touring cast of Sweeney Todd. You like Sweeney Todd? Uh, I don't know. No. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> <laughs> the movie's coming out with Johnny Depp soon, so that's probably going to increase thing. Uh, yeah, but we got a lot of great stuff. We've got Tony Award-winning producer Stuart F. Lane. Okay. Won three, won three Tony Awards, wrote a new book. Okay. Well, that should be a good show, then. <laughs> We've got Nicolette Hart and uh, Rodney Hicks from Rent. Okay. That was a good one. Yeah, so, and uh, we've got the members of Groove Lily coming back to talk about their musical Striking 12, which was a big holiday hit last year and is now touring around the country. Right, right, okay. With all these choices, are you still sure you want to go see Chicago? Uh, yeah. I mean, I've only got time to see the other ones, you know. It's seven days in a week, so <laughs> it's only Wednesday. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks so much, and have a good time tonight. Before we get on with the show, I just want to let everybody know we're switching a little bit, at least for the moment I'm experimenting. We are moving the show to every other week. We're actually going to be the second and fourth Thursday of the month. Uh, but don't worry, we're going to still give you just as much. We're going to put out two episodes on each of those things. It may sound odd, but I, I need to save some time somehow, and it actually works out that on production day, it takes about as much time to do two episodes as it does to do one. So, I uh, hope this doesn't throw a crimp in everybody's plans. Uh, you know, you can always just save the second episode for the following week, you know. And, uh, but, I don't know, if you're a junkie, you're probably just going to go through it all at once, aren't you? <laughs> well, and in addition to that, I'm going to try to do some more fun things. I feel if I'm doing this every week, you know, sometimes I hate getting stuck in my recording studio for uh, 16 hours a day, so I'm going to try to get out to places here like the TKTS booth and talk with people and see what's up and get the pulse and just overall have a little bit of fun. So with that in mind, we got a lot on Act 1. we got Stuart F. Lane. We've got Rent. We've got Groove Lily on Act 2. 
we have got the entire cast of the touring company of Sweeney Todd, and we've got the radio play company of Coyote Rep, plus news, interviews, and a lot more. Okay, hope you enjoy. Page Turners. I'm sure many of our listeners have either put on a show or are wondering how to put on a show. And, well, great enough, there's a new book out called Let's Put On a Show, which covers a lot of those basics, written by extraordinary producer Stuart F. Lane, Tony Award-winning producer. And not only does he walk you through the basics on how to mount a show, but he enlightens us with many a tale, uh, priceless behind-the-scenes information in this book. And we're so lucky to have this Tony Award winner right here in the studio to chat with us. How are you doing? Oh, I'm doing great, and it's fine, fun to be here. <laughs> so now, this book is put out by Heinemann Drama. So, uh, what, what was your motivation besides... Uh Besides, uh, you know, making a few bucks off of a book, but <laughs> well, certainly not make a few bucks off of this book. Uh, but it, it'd be nice. But it, you know, this, this kind of effort is more of a labor of love when it comes down to it. I'm trying to. It's hard enough to produce a show anyway. So, uh, with uh, and there's nothing out there. That's number one. There's nothing else out there that actually shows people to, to explains to them how to put a show together. Whether it's a community theater or a regional theater, or it's a charity event that you're trying to perform. Uh, there's nothing out there, and there's definitely nothing out there by someone who's a professional in the theater. Uh, the closest thing you get to theater books are by professors who've never come near a theater. Yeah, and, and this book is is great on that level. I found it, I'd say this is where the book appeals. It appeals to complete newcomers who want to put on a show, because it really does walk through the basics. But where its appeal is for people who perhaps have a little bit more experience is with your behind-the-scenes stories that you that you have that are quite interesting. You know, what happens on the Broadway uh, backstage happens in the community theater backstage, or the regional, or the university. <laughs> so, do you want to share with us a couple, they don't have to be in the book, but why don't you share us a couple of your more interesting uh, production-related stories? Well, <laughs> well, you know, it's, if, if all the shows were hits, it gets to be embarrassing. You know, people don't like that. So, you have to pay your dues. So, uh, once in a while, I did indeed produce something less than successful. Uh, and uh, it was a show called Frankenstein, and and for its uh, time, it was had the dubious honor of being the most expensive play to ever close in one night on Broadway. And I talk about the it's Joe. Always Al fun to have those records. Well, it helps balance it. Keep, <laughs> it keeps you humble, number one, and it balances things out in the end. Anyway, there's there's a restaurant here in New York called uh, Joe Allen's, and on the Joe Allen's they have this brick wall filled with some of the biggest flops of Broadway, and some big names are on that wall. You know, Hal Prince is on that wall. David Merrick is on that wall, and yes, Stuart Lane is on that wall. <laughs> it was an interesting uh, experiment because we, we it was a terrific production. We had a great cast. Diane Weist was in it, John Glover, John Carradine, the father. Uh, you know, the, we had Bran Farron, who was coming off of doing Altered States, so we, all the special effects were there with the Jacob Ladders going up, and the entire castle collapsed on itself on the end with the boulders and the smoke, and the palace theater kind of came in on itself, and the critics hated it. They just hated it. And uh, $2 million, most expensive non-musical ever on Broadway. This is 1980. So when $2 million was probably worth $4 million. Yeah. But it, so uh, here we are the next day at the ad agency, putting, looking over the, pouring over these terrible, devastating reviews. And uh, the silence is deafening. And uh, inevitably, one of the producers says, Hey! Let's let's find our audience. Forget these critics. There's an audience out there, audience out there that really wants to see this. Let's go. How much will it cost? A million dollars. A million dollars. Let's go. And my partner and mentor, Jimmy Needlander, looks at me and says, 
what's the advance sale on that? <laughs> says, well, there's no, there's no advance sale, uh, Jimmy. Critics hated it. Crossed the board. Said, Stuart, cut bait and save your money for the next show. And that was a valuable lesson, let me tell you. You can't fall in love with the project too much to realize that when it's over, it's over. Yeah. Now, I'm curious what you think about the off-Broadway situation here. I, I kind of hammer this drummer run, but so many producers are talking about that it's become financially unfeasible to produce off-Broadway in New York. But in a lot of cases, I think off-Broadway is some of where the most innovative stuff emerges. And how can we make that a healthier situation so that we do ensure we have new and creative voices coming up? And Well, well you know, the, the whole... The whole, the whole culture of Broadway and theater is in constant flux. It's evolving. And, uh, you know, what was right or was the rule five years ago has changed since then. Now, for instance, um, shows that uh, from my early days, from, let's say, the 60s and 70s, when I, I call it the, the heyday of off-Broadway, you had McBird and Lemmings with, with the people that went on to do Saturday Night Live. You had uh, you know, Austin Pendleton doing off-Broadway stuff. You had the Performing Warehouse. Uh, La Mama was a big thing. Uh, this was a time of off-Broadway and real creativity. And uh, what's happened today is... Because some of the older shows are staying, the bigger older shows are hanging in there, like the Phantom of the Operas and the, and the uh, Beauty and the Beast and stuff, they're hanging in. Uh, the only theaters that are available are the smaller, what used to be playhouses. So instead of playing 1,800-seat theaters, you're playing 1,100-seat theaters. And as a result of that, musicals have had to be pared down. So now you're getting smaller Musicals, musicals like Rent, musicals like Avenue Q, musicals like Spelling Bee. And in the case of and in those three cases, those are shows I would probably normally have seen off-Broadway back in the 70s. These were not considered Broadway, quote-unquote, shows. Uh, so, uh, so as a result, we kind of move, everything's being moved up a notch. Uh, where you're finding the innovation off-Broadway now is not so much in the theaters, but in these, these fringe festivals that you see around New York um, all year round. That's where I think the real talent is going. But what, type, what was but what was boutique theater before is now going mainstream. I mean, even the revivals. I think you know, ten years ago, it's a ten time. Time tends to fly when you're my age. But uh, I think it was ten years ago, and Lincoln Center did a revival of. Uh, well, actually, it was called a new production. It was considered new. They did John Guare's The House of Blue Leaves. Now, The House of Blue Leaves was done at the Truck and Warehouse on Third Street back in 1972. Yet here it was, 1988, and they're doing it at Lincoln Center. It's considered a brand new play, because it's ne their reasoning was that it had never been done on Broadway before. And, uh, and it won that year. John Guare, who was considered at that time the oldest promising playwright, uh, finally had a hit on Broadway. Well, but this is this is my problem with I understand In some ways, it's nice that those smaller musicals get out there and, and have a thing, but... Kind of the thing I hear, though, is when you're still on Broadway, no matter what, there's a certain kind of marketing ethos that seems to come into place to all the producers of how can we make this more palatable for, you know, the tourism crowd, where um, Nerds is a good example. I know the producers were talking about how to make the show more emotional and connect so it could work on Broadway because they felt that it was just economically they couldn't get it to work off Broadway. Um, and I didn't, I didn't see their Philadelphia launch to know how they worked it, but I'm like... The show worked. I, I, I saw production of it. It was fantastic. And to hear that they have to completely change the show to try to make it work for mass audience, you know, just because they can't compete with the marketing dollars and they can't get everything to, to work right off Broadway, I think we're missing some of the uniqueness and some of the quirky voices that might then emerge and, and find their way to a more mainstream rather than very early on having to get 
turned into something that they're not. Uh, you know, if you conclude if you include off Broadway as part of the uh, nonprofit theater organizations, I think that uh, over the last thirty five years, these small groups have evolved into major economic and artistic forces on Broadway and Off-Broadway. The Roundabout Theater Company, the Manhattan Theater Company, Lincoln Center. These are considered major Broadway and Off-Broadway sources that contribute regularly to the season. So that that's still going strong. Mm-hmm. I don't know about nerds. I don't know anything and, and that's just like It's just one example. It's like, I do know that even though there's, the smaller shows are now on Broadway, I think there has to be a, they don't look at... Smaller shows can run in New York and appeal to the New York crowd. Off Broadway shows, I still think have to draw on the tourists, and so there still has to be a certain amount of. I think it's going to be really interesting to see how In the Heights plays when it moves to Broadway, because I think it's a show that really inherently has its appeal to New Yorkers, and I'm curious to find out how much that crosses over to bringing in a, a larger house and bringing in the tourists. Yeah, you never know. I mean, uh, Avenue Q. I, I produced a movie called Show Business, The Road to Broadway, which, by the way, comes out on DVD October 16th. Uh, and uh, among other things, it covers the 2004 Broadway season, and we covered some of the major musicals of that year, Taboo, Avenue Q, Wicked, and Caroline Oh, yeah, you were involved with that, too? Yeah, I, that was a great documentary. That oh. was... I saw it. Well, if you remember, in, the, in that movie, we had a couple of lunches with the critics and columnists of New York, and they were kind of voicing what was the considered conventional wisdom at the time, Avenue Q. Who's going to go see it? Who's your audience? Michael Riedel says, this is my crowd. These are the people of my generation that grew up with Sesame Street, and nobody from my generation goes to the theater. It's off the radar completely. Yet, these producers took the show which I would have considered an off-Broadway show, brought it to Broadway and, re- and discovered a brand-new audience that was willing to come out and shell out $100 to see this. So they discovered their audience. Yeah, no, and I agree. But I think that the audience between a Broadway and off-Broadway is a lot of times in not in size, but is in appeal. Um, Avenue Q on the surface can look like a very quirky, but the truth is it's got a very mainstream appeal. Any, any, any young, uh, any of those growing up and learning how to live on her own, it is. It's Sesame Street for adults, and well, adults does, who are twenty-two years old. Yeah, and that, but that is a pretty mainstream appeal. It's a universal sentiment. Whereas a show like Bat Boy might be a little less universal. Um, a show like Angry Housewives, um, which is you know going further back. Ruthless might be. These are some like one of the more popular off Broadway shows that did were popular off Broadway. But Never made any money. Really, Ruthless. There, there was a, that was during a time when you had these wonderful off Broadway musicals. So- Song of Singapore was another one, very funny. Uh, Never made any money. They were too big. They were too expensive to run off-Broadway for the size cast they had. Wow. But today, if you revived that, they would do it on Broadway. Mark my word. <laughs> and I, I understand that nonsense when it first ran. That I guess they lost money for like a year and a half, two years, until they released the community theater rights and the tours. And then after everybody else started putting it on, then all the tours coming to New York sure. wanted to see the original production, and it ran forever. Uh, clever. Very <laughs> clever. So, um, so... Besides, like, what made you want to share? What made you want to share your experience and, and get this out? Because it takes a while to write, and you're a busy man, and it probably involved you getting up a few hours early a lot of mornings to, to get this book done. Yes, they, they whipped me over at the publisher's <laughs> house. Uh, no, you know what? It, it's just that there was nothing else out there like this. You know, doing the theater, whether you're acting, writing, or producing, it's hard enough as it is. And there was nothing out there written by a professional that could lay a basic blueprint out on what you can do pitfalls that I experienced myself, whether you're making a $6,000 or $24,000 showcase, or you're doing an $8 million Broadway show. 
Yeah. And uh, one of the things I found in here that was really interesting was you, I mean, you've produced a lot of major hits. You've won a Tony Award, but you, four, you've won four Tony Awards, yes. Uh. That's right. Four <laughs> Tony Awards. Good for you, yes. You want to list them quick? Well, uh, I'll list them slowly, because <laughs> I worked hard and sweated for each one of them, the blood and the tears. Uh, I was nominated nine times. I won my first Tony for La Cage Fall, the original. I won my second Tony for The Will Rogers Follies. I won my third Tony for Thoroughly Modern Millie, and my fourth Tony just last spring for Jay Johnson, The Two and Only, a show I started off-Broadway and brought to the Helen Hayes Theater. So, you're clearly a very established producer, but you talk a lot in this book about what was, some people might refer to as a vanity project, but you produced a play that you wrote on Broadway, and you illustrate a lot of the stuff that went into that, and how much different is it producing something you've written? And I think that's something a lot of our listeners might be interested in, because I, I, I do think a lot of the way for people now to get noticed is to jump up and have the gumption, and if you don't have a producer behind you, produce your own work. Get it out there. So I'm curious to hear a few more of your kind of statements behind putting on your, your own play. Well, and, and my situation might be unique in, in the sense that because uh, I am a producer... <laughs> you uh, had a few more resources, clearly. Well, and, and people <laughs> say, look, Stuart wrote this play. If he's not going to produce it, can't be that good. <laughs> so I was kind of boxed into a corner where I had, had to produce my own show. Uh, but what's good is that it's the same disciplines are involved, though. I've got a budget. Can't go over this budget. Uh, in the case when, when writing it, I, the, the, the hard part was really slashing the, the play. Watching the audience reaction as we went through previews and realizing that I'm, you know, I'm losing them at this point. What can I do to get them back into the story? And it was a real process. A very exciting process, but a lot of work, let me tell you. Well, what is maybe one of your favorite stories in retrospect dealing with that, that production? What, that, sorry, the name of it escapes me at the moment. Uh, what was the name of that play? Well, there, there are two, so I'm okay. not sure which one. Uh, oh, okay. One uh, was In the Wings, and one was If It Was Easy. I think In the Wings is the one that stuck in my head the most. For the, just not the, <laughs> the name, sorry. But um, what were some of your favorite stories in retrospect of maybe... I think always what's most interesting is what went wrong, you know. <laughs> so many stories. It was well. Here's what there was. There was a young actor. We we hired this one young actor, uh, fresh out of NYU, uh, and, and he he was good. And I thought we we're gonna. He was funny, and uh, as I started cutting the. He was one of the secondary characters. He wasn't the major character. But as I started cutting, I started cutting everything down to make it as lean as possible. And then he started picking up on this like attitude that he was getting, like you know. I, I, I did this job uh, because of the size of the role. Now you're cutting it down. I'm going, you've never worked before in your life. This is your first job. What are you complaining about? <laughs> Everyone's a prima donna, I tell you, Michael. That's why they get into it, you know. <laughs> I think, uh, acting is inherently a look-at-me kind of business. and I, oh. I, I, I love actors, but I think you've got to have a certain amount of... Uh, Need for attention to, to no, that's fine, but you shouldn't be rude about it. For God's <laughs> sake, you should be kissing my shoes for heaven's sake. I'm paying him to do this. <laughs> that was one story. That was uh... now another topic that I think is very interesting. There's long held a belief that's slowly starting to change, but I'm kind of wondering your perspectives that releasing film rights or letting the you know letting a uh, you know, tape version of the play out on DVD or to air on television would hurt sales. And um, I think recently all evidence has been to the contrary, and I, I was really excited to see that MTV's taking on airing Legally Blonde, mm -hmm. which I really think, I personally think is going to drastically increase their ticket sales and, and drastically increase the life of the show. It's my personal bet. So the two-part is, do you feel that 
you know, uh, you know, you know, Rent. Even though the movie didn't do that well, it definitely gave the play extra legs. Chicago was about ready to close before the musical came out on you know movie. Even the Phantom of the Opera again didn't do that well, but it gave Phantom of the Opera some additional legs. What do, what are your thoughts about finding other ways to get the shows out to the audiences and yet still bringing bringing them in to the productions in New York? Well, the challenge of the MTV proposition was uh, was the evidence had been mounting over the years. You know, 30 years ago, uh, shows only ran three, four years. You were a hit. That was a great run. Four years was a great run show. Annie ran seven. That was an anomaly. Uh, yeah, and all the long runs are modern era age. In right, and, but now we're talking shows that run 17 years. Actors are getting mortgages. It's, 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 <laughs> it's amazing. It's, 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 water runs uphill. Fish sing in the street. <laughs> and actors are actually buying homes and selling down. So, uh, so the whole concept of having the movie come out used to be very nervous. I mean, when Annie ran, the movie actually it was one of the first shows that was actually still running when the movie came out. Normally, the rights had been, would be sold, and the movie would, be, would have to wait till like a year after the movie the show had closed for it to be released, kind of thing. With Disney's success with High School Musical, it became overwhelmingly apparent that even though they'd seen it on TV again and again and again. This young audience would still pay money to see a live show version of it, buy the CD of it, or go to a concert version of it and not get tired of it. And in fact, come back to see High School Musical 2. And that's our audience with Legally Blonde. So it seemed to make perfect sense, a certain amount of risk involved, but you know, life's a risk, uh, to actually show it on MTV, which I believe will be September 29th at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, uh, will be the first showing of it. And I think that it's a calculated risk, but I think you're right. I think that that's our audience, and that's what they want to see. Are you involved with Legally Blonde? I'm one of the producers, and... Okay, I didn't even... Uh, I'm, uh, that's, as a matter of fact, I'm... I've been um, doing... I've been interviewing at this point about 80 shows at the New York Musical Theater Festival, so my brain is, like, overstuffed with... <laughs> well, I'll, I'll help you out. I, I, I produce Legally Blonde that's running now. I've, I own the Palace Theater here in New York. I'm partners with Needle Lander in that. And I'm currently in rehearsals with Kevin Klein, uh, starring as Cyrano de Bergerac, with, with uh, Jennifer Garner. And we open October... We, we start previews October 12th and open November 1st. It's a limited run. It's going to be an amazing production, because this is the original Pirate King, Clevin Klein, yeah. swashbuckling his way through this romantic story. Uh, it's very sexy, very hot, and uh, I, I, and if, if you're interested at all in Kevin or Jennifer, you better get your tickets now, because it's only a limited run. We close like December 13th. It was a great window of opportunity. Kevin was between movies. He'd always wanted to do this before, and uh, I, I mean, I, I appreciate this kind of once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Yeah. It'll never happen again. He's busy. The timing, everyone's got things to do. This window, it could work. You're not going to go, again, you don't get rich on something like this. You do it because it's so perfect and so exciting. Yeah, no, that does sound fantastic. Yeah. It's a perfect thing for Kevin. That's, um, I'm jotting it down definitely now. That's a, that's a can't miss. Uh, so are other producers starting to open up to this idea of trying to expose their shows other ways via MTV and and whatnot? Or? Well, you know, it, this has been a process that has been evolving. I mentioned... Um, I, I hear people are scared that if something if a clip's on YouTube that it's going to scare people away from the shows. And I think it's quite the reverse. When my, my thought is people don't come to a musical for freshness. That's why everything's based on something. People come to be entertained with something they're kind of familiar with, and I think when you get the material out on YouTube, it it doesn't steer people away. They don't go, "Oh, I saw a clip on YouTube. Now I don't have to see the show." It makes them more passionate to get in. And You're see absolutely the right. Thing. What's happened is become it comes an arm of your advertising uh, budget. Uh, suddenly, someone decides to do, record you know three minutes of Legally Blonde on their telephone and puts it on YouTube. This is advertising. 
uh, you know, so the corporations discovered uh, New York in live theater, and now they're they're major players in the in the in the uh, in the ball game here. Uh, but they've discovered that using the internet is more important than anything else. I don't think it's any any coincidence that you know the Broadway receipts have been up since the advent of the internet. It's access, you know, tourists out of town. There was no way to get the news. There was no way to find out. Now they can easier to buy tickets. It's easier to buy it online. It's not just easier to buy tickets. It's easier to find out about that show and know that it's worth spending your money on. You know, when when you come into town and the tickets are That's escalating right. up to you know 120 bucks. This is why I think the the MTV thing is going to work fantastic, and I applaud you on this. Is well, um, you, know, you know this this is because now they know the, to them now it's like okay I know if I spend my 120 bucks yeah. I'm going to get an entertainment thing because I saw it on MTV and damn that's good and now I get to experience it live and be a f- one of the few club that actually saw it live and what happens is the unique nature of theater is you can't can't be pirated it's live entertainment exactly but once you record it you've changed it automatically so yes yeah the recording just becomes promotional and that's out- right. other outlets and ways to build the buzz and and I- I'm hoping to see more and more you know producers recognize that this technology I think is really what's kind of fueling I mean last year I know Broadway's receipts were record not only record box office but record in attendance mm-hmm. forever you know it's you know live entertainment is one of the only things that's on an upswing in this era of file sharing and DVD and I think the live experience has become more valuable and all this internet connectivity is kind of great but it makes you really itch to go out well, and see uh, something and our audiences have changed so ra- so radically we you know we've we in the business have been trying to expand our audiences for years bring young people in get them used to going to the theater and enjoying going to the theater and uh, we haven't had this kind of renaissance on bro- I call it the, the new golden age the the nouveau golden age of, of of Broadway where we are not elitist anymore. It's not just Pinter on stage or uh, sophisticated, two sophisticated musicals. We've got everything from Eugene O'Neill to Spamalot. It's like the 1920s when you had Helzapoppin yeah. and, and Eugene O'Neill. You know, we've got, we've got uh, something on Broadway for everyone. You can start off with The Lion King, work your way up to Legally Blonde and then Spring Awakening uh, and go over to Spamalot for some more you know, high-class, low-class comedy. Uh, there's something that has opened our foundation to a larger group of people, making it more accessible to more people. Yeah, and I and I applaud you. Like I said, I'm, I'm glad you're one of the people in the forefront of recognizing the new way of reaching out to the audience. So, and again, the book is called "Let's Put on a Show." Oh yes, uh, from Heinemann Drama, and they can get this where I'm assuming Amazon.com, Amazon.com, or BarnesandNoble.com. Uh, and if you go directly to the publisher, you could probably get twenty percent off. So. And uh, we'll definitely put a link to Amazon.com on our website in the show notes with this. Oh, uh, thanks. Great. To let people know. And I thank you so much for coming on and sharing such great stories. I know you're a very, very busy man. <laughs> we, we scheduled this interview like two months in advance. Didn't we? <laughs> um, J- Jules, my, my, my publicist here, has been from 5W. has done such a great job that uh, we have to schedule my lunches in between. <laughs> So, Stuart F. Lane, let's put on a show. Don't miss it. And uh, at, at the time we air this, the Legally Blonde thing will have happened. So I, uh, I hope that is a rousing success for you. And I hope it encourages people to open their eyes and, and realize the power of everything that's going on now to enhance Broadway. Well, thank you so much, yes. And I hope your book helps somebody down in Poughkeepsie to <laughs> or uh, Duluth. To put on their first successful show. Another successful production is another successful cry for the, th- the arts. <laughs> All right. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Thanks. The Call Board.
Victoria Clark, Stuart F. Lane, Phyllis Newman, and Michael Riddle will be a part of a theater-themed night of discussion at the Synagogue for the Performing Arts in Manhattan on November 5th at 7.30 p.m. The discussion, focusing on behind-the-scenes looks at theater, will be moderated by Edie Fredfield. Tickets are $10. For more information and tickets, visit www.makor.org. All right, and we just did a giveaway for Rachel York's uh, solo CD, Let's Fall in Love. We had her on two episodes back and told you are going to give away some signed copies. Now, if you have signed up on the website and you didn't get an email, I'd love to hear about it. Um, I've, I've heard of a couple people. Not getting our contest emails, even though they are registered users on the site. And I'm kind of curious how widespread that is. So email me at info at broadwaybullet.com. If you didn't get an email to hear about this, uh, now if you got it late, that's another problem. You know, we do contests differently. Sometimes you've got a limited amount of time to respond. But in any case, let's announce our winners. Uh, the first one is Kevin Gardner from New York, New York. And uh, he had something to say. And we're going to have a dramatic impersonation of his statement from one of our interns. Rachel York is the Barbara Streisand of jazz. And have you seen her, Lucy? We love you! Our second winner is Eric Bays from Daily City, California. And again, here is the dramatic interpretation from a Broadway Bullet intern. I was first introduced to Rachel York during the Broadway Bullet Volume 109 when she talked about Summer of 42, and I immediately bought the cast recording. She was a great voice, and I would like to be able to see her in a show someday. But for now, I'll just listen to her wonderful voice on this great CD. Thanks, Broadway Bullet, for bringing me great interviews and music like this. Well, congratulations, you guys. I know we're getting a couple more contests lined up. We hadn't had many going on for all the nymph stuff going on for a while, and I got crazy, but we are going to be having more, so make sure you are signed up for the mailing list. Uh, even if you sign up now, even if we find a different way of handling it because of the problems, we will get your names transferred. So far, everybody that has emailed me saying they didn't get a list were, are actually in our database. Uh, so you aren't lost. We'll get you. I just am curious. Please email me at info at broadwaybullet.com so I can find out how widespread this is. And also, the call board is sponsored by, well, me. I do recording services here in New York City. Got a recording studio in Times Square. If you or you know somebody who's looking to do any type of recording, Broadway, pop, R&B, rock, a little bit of everything. And I do a great job. Just give me a buzz. 646-345-3433 to discuss your recording project or email me at info at broadwaybullet.com. We also have one more sponsored listing for the call board, and here it is. Earn your degree in hamburgerology at the hilarious new off-Broadway show, Minimum Wage, a witty, madcap, interactive, delightfully goony musical that is sung entirely a cappella with a talented cast of five harmonizing, humming, belting, and beatboxing. Variety says legitimately kicks ass. Backstage says funny and brilliant. And NewYorkTheater.com says capable of following in the footsteps of Avenue Q, Urinetown, and the Putnam County Spelling Bee. It's a fun-filled evening sure to leave you with a song clogged in your heart and a smile lodged in your arteries. For $25 exclusive Broadway Bullet discount tickets, go to BroadwayOffers.com and type in code MWEBLST or BurgerBoys.com. All right, so you are going to what show? Mary Poppins. And what's your name? Uh, Jie Ping. Yeah, we come from Taiwan, actually. Now, did you come all the way to see Mary Poppins? Yes, that's right. You're a little ways back here in the line. Do you think you're going to get a ticket? I think we will, yeah, because they told us they still have tickets, yeah. 
Well, if not, up next, we're interviewing uh, Nicolette Hart and Rodney Hicks from Rent in the program. So. Oh, okay. We watched your Rent before, yeah. Did you enjoy it? Yes. All right. Well, maybe you saw these two at some point. Yeah. Thanks so much. Thank you. On the boards. Any show with a 12-year history has got exactly that, a lot of history. And I don't think I need to say a lot about the following show to our longtime listeners. And for Rent, we have got two people who illustrate both ends of that example. Rodney Hicks appeared in the original off-Broadway production of Rent and is now currently playing Benny as well in the production. And Nicolette Hart is brand new to the cast this year, and she's playing Maureen. And they're both here in the studio with us today. How are you doing? Doing very well. Fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> so what? What's the? You guys just had a pretty uh, tumultuous closing night. Uh, well, not closing night, but closing night for uh, the two. It felt like a closing night. <laughs> yeah, it, did. it really. It felt like opening and closing all in one. It did. One night. It really did. Like the opening felt like. It was a beautiful, amazing couple months. It was like a, a gift. In, I mean, in the middle of a show that already is an amazing gift, mm-hmm, it was like mm-hmm. the biggest cherry, you know? It was On top. Inc- it was incredible to get to know them, to get to work with them. I mean, obviously, Rodney has a relationship with them already, but for We're someone talking like Adam, me... Anthony Rapp and Adam Pascal. Yes, for anybody of course. Who is for anyone who's been under a rock. <laughs> 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 but, uh, yeah, it was a really difficult night, Sunday night. It was... Uh, Monday night was difficult too. Yeah. <laughs> no, no. Honestly, because yeah. we we all were used to to a certain level of uh, of, of excitement and, and, and energy that was generated by uh, Adam and Anthony. And uh, Monday night, it, I think we all went through a little withdrawal. You <laughs> sure, know, um, and and Harley, Harley and Declan are are absolutely fantastic. Yes. Um, but it, it was. It was a little bit of a withdrawal, even from them. We all were collectively sure. in mourning, <laughs> but great, we got it through. We the got great thing it. is, even even with being really super sensitive to yeah. the change from Sunday to Monday, you know, going out after the show, it was great to to, to talk to people and meet with the audience mm-hmm. and have them still. You're still touching people the same way. You're Absolutely. still telling the same story. You're yes. still affecting people the same way. Yes, the the hype of the Originals mm-hmm. is is not there anymore, but the, the story piece is still there. It's still Jonathan's work. It more. doesn't change a single thing. Yes, you know what I mean. That's all I want to talk about. Kind of, you definitely have two different perspectives, Rodney. I'm I'm curious, kind of your perspective of being involved in the original production and now right. coming back as as Benny. What are the challenges for you in terms of keeping it fresh and finding new angles on? Well, it's a different role, but and and that's what yeah. makes it. Uh, I I think. Uh, easier and new as well because I, I've never uh, played Benny. I went on for Benny like twice because uh, I originally understudied him but at the time, you know, I was 20 years old and I looked like I was 14. You, so, you still look like you're like 20 years old. <laughs> it's kind of scary. So he yeah. came in and go, wait, original cast? Was yeah, it? Everyone, it's funny because everyone <laughs> says that. They're like, were well, you like 15? <laughs> but um, <laughs> But uh, the, the the thing is, is that because I looked so young, they didn't put me on that much. <laughs> um, and uh, so it's funny. I only had like two days of rehearsal here because I think people assumed and I had to go, whoa, whoa, wait a second. This is really new to me. <laughs> but uh, so it, I feel like I'm going into it new as well, you know, because the way I approach the character uh, of Benny this time around is really just another fresh take on it incorporating with with this new cast so it, it, it's kind of a 
I don't know. From ni- 96 is a little of a blur. <laughs> you know, I mean, and, and it's easier. Adam and I were talking about that. It, it's a lot easier because we had all we had the the cloud of, of Jonathan's passing and and just all of the hype and everything, and we weren't able to mourn until after we all left the show. And now we're able to just do the show, you know, and tell this amazing story with this amazing bunch of people. The, the cast, um, it, everyone just makes it so easy to do the show. So, yeah, it's a, so I, I understand with Nicolette going into it this first year, I kind of feel brand new as well, you know, but with a little bit of, uh, I guess, baggage, but not bad baggage, but like great baggage, you yeah. know? Yeah. It's great. It's like just being informed, you know, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. you get part of that just by being on stage with people that have been in the show. Do you, you know. feel any baggage of the history of actresses associated <clears throat> with Maureen and stuff when you come in to take on your own twist on the role? Um, I, I, I think initially I think I did. I think uh, maybe there was a little bit of like a, a cloud of letting things get in my way. But eventually... Um, it took me a couple of months, I, I think. But then I was just kind of, I really wanted to make it my own. I really wanted to do my own thing. And, and Michael Greif gave me the all the tools mm-hmm. and all the incentive in the world to, to really be me and make it my own. Same thing, yeah. He's Michael is really great at that. He yeah. It doesn't matter who your um, predecessor is. Mm-hmm. He's like, you know, we hired you for you. And whatever you're watching and seeing, not taking anything away from that person, but... You're, you and that person are totally different and what you bring is different and she plays an amazing Maureen and just completely different than anything I've ever seen and it just it just works it, it's, it's really 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 great actually and I think <laughs> you're being unfair to the audience to try to sort of Carbon fool copy. them into <laughs> trying to become something and right. then you just become sort of this watered down version of something that you're really not and I, right. you know I think if you're true to yourself and you believe in what you're yeah. doing they, they get that too yeah you know? Now, you've both done some other things as well. What, what, what are some of those yeah. for our listeners? I know. Uh, well, my first, my first experience with Rent actually was in 2005. I got to understudy Maureen, and I played um, Mrs. Cohen for about 10 weeks, which was great. I got to dip my toe in the <laughs> Rent pool. That was my first Broadway experience. And, uh, and then I left to start Wedding Singer, and I was in Wedding Singer from, from the beginning to the to the grave death of the show <laughs> and then stepped right back into Rent which was amazing like a week after yeah. Wedding Singer closed I came to Rent as Maureen That's which was blessing. really you know, IDB uh, IBDB has you listed as being in Rent since 96 That's so fantastic <laughs> yeah. I just love that I've been working That's hard sign, since 96 <laughs> you know it's tough sign. keeping it fresh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll have to call them and figure that out <laughs> no um, before before uh, 2005 I was uh, on the road with Bette Midler as a harlot. Mm-hmm. Did the Kiss My Brass tour, which was obviously a phenomenal experience, incredible learning experience, and just a wild ride. That was great. We did two U.S. tours, and then we went to Australia. And uh, and before that, I was in Nashville. So for about four years, working on a record down there, and um, sort of honing skills and tools and learning about the business and, and all of that. So. so you play around with a lot of different styles then, huh? Yeah, yeah. I, I enjoy country music immensely and uh, uh, love R&B and, um, yeah, but I've always, I've always been kind of a theater nut 
as well. But yeah, I got attracted to country music a long time ago and played guitar and um, did a lot of work uh, as, a, as a country singer um, professionally. And uh, yeah, still part of my soul, definitely. Rodney, looking at her like, Rodney's wow. going, what? What? Wow, I didn't know that. <laughs> <laughs> and Rodney is into klezmer music, right? Uh, <laughs> right? Yeah. And man. she was a woman. You know, no. <laughs> clogging is, is, is my specialty. Um, no, uh, you know, I, I started uh, really young. I, I was kind of like a pseudo child actor kid um, with uh, commercials like the um, Calvin on the McDonald's commercials <laughs> in the uh, 80s. But, um, you know, I basically um, have been working since I um, left school and uh, got rent and uh, from there I, I worked hard to get out of the rent thing in a sense and, and try to establish myself as a um, an adult which took a lot of years actually because a lot of people only saw me as a kid and uh, in that time I, I had the opportunity and the privilege to work with amazing directors and, and to go from um, you know television uh, shows, you know, I'm like the king of failed pilots, <laughs> you know, or How many? Oh, about 10, <laughs> you know, or the or TV shows that last like two episodes. Um, but, uh, but it's great, you know, um, but, but I've had the opportunity to go from uh, Shakespeare to classical theater to musicals to, you know, just to hone, hone everything. And um, this year alone, it, it's funny, it started off with uh, King Lear going into uh, this this absurd play <laughs> that was playing a, a dentist that was like had a, a killer streak in him and then you know um, I was offered a Cymbeline and rent on the same day and it was kind of like a little no brainer for me because mm -hmm. I wanted to do the full circle you know and I was like uh, I think rent is I need to go back to that because actually I didn't have a last day in rent originally I left in 97 and um, because I sprained my ankle in the show because at the time the diva kid the, La the ill kid that was me <laughs> um, and um, I had clogs on that were like about three inch heels you know and they don't have them anymore because of what happened. And we were dancing on the table, and I jumped off and just came down Ugh. on my ankle. And uh, I continued on <laughs> to finish out the number. And uh, intermission, Crystal, um, who I love, our stage manager, she took me to the uh, hospital. And I, I, something in my soul said, you know, you're done. Mm. You know? And, um, and, and that was kind of that. So for years... I, regardless of whatever anything I accomplishments that I did I said I need to go back Felt and have unfinished. a last show in Rent and do mm -hmm. Rent again and I was um, really fortunate to have this opportunity and because uh, it's only been like four bennies yeah. like in 11 years and uh, and the D. Monroe who played it before me he was in it for about three four years yep. and didn't think he was ever going to leave you know <laughs> and uh, you know and I called up Michael Greif and I said Mike you know I, I heard that uh, D. Monroe there's a possibility he may be leaving and I think I have a little bit of I have time you know I, I God I would love to uh to, to, to do this and uh, I said I would even come in I don't care you know so I, I totally came in and, and auditioned with everyone else mm -hmm. you know and I was really happy that it went that way as opposed He's to just great. here's the role you know because you mm -hmm. kind of feel like you earned it in a way so yeah it's cool <laughs> yeah. 
Well, Nicolette, I know I know that even though you're currently you know doing been doing some Broadway, that you still feel that continuing your education in theater is pretty important. Okay. Yeah, I'm I'm um, I'm trying to sort of move into the more of the TV and film realm. So I'm getting ready to take some more classes, and I'm I'm doing a lot of reading. I don't know. I got into this place. I think when you start to get settled in a show, it only took seven months, but when you get settled in a show, you you know for me at least, I start to feel like I can breathe and it's you know it's where I go and it's what I do but then I have this time that I want to sort of flex other muscles and so um, I'm working on an album I have a great manager and great song, uh, writers I haven't written since I was in Nashville so it's opening up a whole creative outlet that had sort of had a little stop put in it for a while so um, so that's great so I'm writing and working on that and um, and getting ready to try to break heavy into the TV film world. So, yeah. So that's good. It gives me a d different f focus and a different energy. And, and Rodney, how, how much, how important do you feel education in theater is in terms of pursuing a career? I, I firmly believe in education <laughs> in theater because, it, you know, it, it hones you. You know, wh whether, it's, whether it's institutional or whether it's learning it while you're doing it, you, you know, you, you never stop learning. And, and, and I feel like knowing the craft and, and having the training grounds you and prepares you for each different uh, job, job that you're going to do, yeah. as opposed to just going off of... Because I, I really believe that raw talent can only take you so far, mm -hmm. you, you know? And uh, even if you're just picking up a book... And reading an actor prepares, you know, and, and you I don't care if you've never done a conservatory or anything like that. You know, if it's already in you, then it's there. You know what I mean? But but it's just getting the tools. Uh, but I know for me, I've always wanted to do Broadway since I was like five, you know, and, and now it seems like a really amazing time. Like things have been happening. I'm like, what? Really? Yeah. It is uh, amazing. Yeah. So yeah, I, I kind of believe in. Uh, education in theater. I think it's funny when you meet people that think we have the easiest gig, like, you guys work at night, and what do you do all day? You sleep out, you know. And no. it's funny, I mean, I, I can't really think of of days where I'm just like, oh, you know, God, I wish I had something to do. You know, I, I, if you're not reading plays or, or taking a voice lesson or, or doing readings or yeah. auditioning for commercials, I mean, that at least for me, I mean, you're always if I'm not something. feeding myself mm -hmm. and constantly doing stuff, then I'm really... I'm not happy, and I think I think the majority of us in the Broadway community, I think we all sort of work that way. You're constantly yeah. Yeah. trying to get yourself to that next place. I I love that this community is so uh, so like goal oriented and skill based, yeah. and yeah. everyone's trying to like just be the best they can be at everything and yeah. running to classes and all that stuff. It's like it's like being in college all the time. Oh, it's like being in school, it is. Broadway, it's Broadway like, uh, school, Broadway college. <laughs> it's funny because uh, for years I, I always. I love to help everyone, you know, and I, I love, I was telling you yesterday, last night, I love talent. I love watching talent, not just being on, but I love, I, I, there's something that feeds you, you know, when you watch really talented people and people doing what they want to do, mm -hmm. you know, and, and a lot of my friends, I don't, a lot of people are like, why are you like telling someone about an audition and like they're your same type? I said, I don't care. Yeah. I said, if, if it's meant for you, it's meant for you. Totally. You absolutely. know, why, why not tell someone? So, um. I, I don't know. I, so I'm a big believer in helping people and supporting people and going, hey, did you hear about this? Mm -hmm. You need to go out and do this. And, 
you know, even if I'm going for the same role, it, it doesn't matter. Yeah. And because I don't view this industry as a competition. No. And that's what I love about our show is yeah. that there's no competition on stage. Because, you know, you have some shows and everyone's out for themselves. And it's kind of ugly, you know, and, and it creates a, an ugly atmosphere backstage, ugly atmosphere on stage. And this show, there, there's such, when I walked in, there's such mm -hmm. a family. home and family. Our, our stage manager, John Vivian, he is really like our stage dad. <laughs> you know what I mean? And Sorry. you could tell how much he cares and loves everyone and, and you know, in his own way, you know, and mm -hmm. it's just uh and you're just kinda like, Hey John <laughs> you know it's and it's a it's a very special place. It really is. Everyone is really there for each other and uh you know, and I think that's what keeps it going. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and it just touches uh, a lot of generations, obviously. Yeah, we have the greatest fans in the world. They range from like nine to like to 90. 60. Yeah, it's amazing. You know, or 90, yeah, yeah. because it, it does touch a chord in, in someone's life, you know, and uh, yeah, it's, it's just great. We're lucky. Very lucky. <laughs> right, so how long are you going to be, are you guys contracted, or do you know how long you're going to be in I know my contract. <laughs> I, uh, I um I I think my contract takes me through the holidays, maybe into January, and then oh. we'll see um we'll see what happens. Yeah, my, mine takes me through March, March eleventh. Um, sure, listeners have a little while to get down and see in yeah. the show. Yeah, yeah, you know, and uh, I should plug that workshop, right? Yeah, plug it. Oh. It's good. <laughs> I, I just uh, I'm excited. I, I just uh, Kenny Leon. Uh, the director of uh, Gym of the Ocean and uh, and Radio Golf and Raising and Sun. Uh, he's doing a, a, a new uh, workshop of a new show called uh, Ivory Joe Cole. It's and fantastic. It, it's really, really terrific. It's 1950 uh, jazz swing big band era retelling of Othello. And it's pretty amazing. And uh, I, I just booked uh, one of the two leads. And uh, I'm like, it's gonna holy be Christ. Good. <laughs> but Some it's, of the music gets hot. It, it's really, really insane. Mm -hmm. And Kenny Leon is it's just spectacular. But it, it's just funny how everything since Rent has just kind of started All manifesting yeah. in a sense, you know. Yeah. But uh, I look forward to coming to work every day and seeing these people and and playing with them on stage every day, you know? We're lucky. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, Rodney Hart and, I mean, sorry, Rodney Hicks and Nicolette Hart, <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much for coming down and talking with thank us you very much. Broadway Bullet and wish you the best thank of luck you. in your careers and the rest of your run. Thank, thank you, you very much. Hi, so what's your name? Uh, Sean. Sean, where are you from? Australia. Oh, all the way from Australia. <laughs> what are you looking to see today? Uh, spam a lot. Excited? Well, yeah, if we can get tickets. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you don't, I don't know how long you're going to be here, but next up on the program, we've got Groove Lily. They go to the great holiday show coming back uh, this holiday season. Okay. You heard of the band? No, I haven't. Striking 12, great show. Recommend you check it out. But enjoy Spam a lot. Okay, thanks. Up close. I love it when we have previous guests return bearing even bigger news. Groove Lily is made up of uh, Brendan Milburn and Valerie Vigoda, as well as their drummer, um, Gene, Gene Lewis. Gene Lewis, who <laughs> I was Lewin. searching for. Lewin. <laughs> <laughs> who I'm searching for on the CD. Couldn't make it in the studio today. But uh, now you were on the show last year, volume 14, uh, talking about Striking 12, your musical. We'll get to a little bit of the new stuff with that later. But uh, you've got a brand new CD out now that is also kind of mixing uh, theater and pop and 
jazz and all sorts of things. Absolutely. The record is called A Little Midsummer Night's Music, and it is a a wild poo-poo platter of the about a half, 36 minutes worth of the crazy music we did for Tina Landau's A Midsummer Night's Dream, in which there were 19 people on stage, many of them suspended from 30 feet above on bungee cords uh, and climbing Chinese poles. It was... It was. It could could only have been Tina Landau's Midsummer Night's Dream. It was a wonderful, weird, fabulous, just totally vivid dream. And we, the band Groove Lily, were at the center of the stage for the beginning and the end. And we, our music was woven through it. We were the, I guess the the underlying fabric on which the, on which the whole thing was painted. But Tina's vision was that the Midsummer Night's Dream was Groove Lily's dream. And so everything kind of sprung out of the three of us being asleep at our instruments. And so we got to be playing, underscoring, and playing songs and such pretty much the entire show. We were on stage 95% of the time playing. And the result is, I think, the most freeing musical experience we've had as far as making a record. Um, Because we were completely unfettered by the desire or possibility of pop radio. We were basically setting Shakespeare's text to music, and so we could kind of do whatever we wanted. And so we went joyfully crazy with the the three of us doing lots of interesting different meters and tempos and, and creating worlds, the fairy world and the mechanical world and things like that. And it was so much fun. Uh, it's the closest that we've ever gotten to kind of prog rock, and it, <laughs> it's, it's really a fun record. We had a great time doing it. It's our second release on PS Classics, and it uh, it came out recently, and we're thrilled with it. Yeah. We it, recorded most of it uh, in our home. <laughs> That's always nice. The collaboratory. To- <laughs> <we call it. laughs> so what, what, what was your favorite part producing the CD then? Well, Brent, Brendan produced it. Yes, that's okay. And Brendan is here to say that <laughs> it it was a great deal of fun to to take what was essentially two hours of underscoring and and a few choice moments of singing and try to take the bits that fit together and and bring them into suites um, so that we could have sections on this record that were typical song length. Frequently, characters would burst into song on stage for maybe 30 seconds, a minute, a minute and a half, but we took all the Titania pieces, all the Oberon pieces, and all the Puck pieces and stuck them together into uh, into little congealed suites <laughs> on the record. And just doing the arranging with all three of us in the room and revisiting the music about six months later to, to bring it all back together was a great deal of fun. Um, producing is hard work. Um, some of it is, is working in the studio. A lot of it is just tedious editing and making sure that there are no pops and hisses and clicks. Um, I'm sure you're familiar with that, <laughs> doing a podcast day in and day out. But For us also, a lot of it was waiting until the construction noises across the street would die down and subside for a moment so we could record a vocal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think uh, next, next record we make at the collaboratory, we're, we're building a real vocal booth. So, But it's, it's, right now it's our favorite record that we've ever made just because... It's so crazy and does not pay any lip service to trying to 
to do anything that's appropriate for Top 40 Radio. Every other record we've ever made, we were trying to get stuff onto the, onto the radio, and we're no longer concerned about that. Um, so some of it might be difficult listening for some people, but I think some of it's the most beautiful music we've ever made, including the song we're going to be, we'd like you to play yeah. now. Um, Which this, is a very accessible one. Yeah. This one uh, closed Tina's Act One when... Um, the four lovers in A Midsummer Night's Dream are asleep on the stage after having this big, crazy fight with mud wrestling and rain and leaves and, and just completely lost their way in the forest. And Puck comes on stage and he sings uh, this song called All Shall Be Well. All right. On the ground Sleep sound I'll apply To Gentle lover, remedy when thou wakest, thou takest true. 
Okay, so all that stuff with Midsummer Night's Dream and the CD out, people can get it now. Probably iTunes online. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, oh, I was just going to say that uh, when you said we just didn't care at all about getting on the radio and things like that, and for the first time ever, our record came up in Amazon under the recommendations <laughs> that you usually see big stars, and suddenly there was, oh, Groove, if you like this, you might like Groove Lily. I, I don't think they knew they were <laughs> recommending it for us, members of Groove Lily, but it was still nice to see that. <laughs> um, and, and the final thing I wanted to say about the record is that in addition to setting Shakespeare's text, there are three songs that we wrote with our own lyrics commenting on the story. So you'll see a lot of Shakespeare's verse, and then you'll see some Groove Lily lyrics. All right. Now, so that's one thing that's been going great. But then Striking 12, uh, you, you came on last episode 14. It's still available. People can download it and hear two new, you know, two more songs from you guys about right. the thing. But uh, there's been a lot going on with your show Striking 12, which I saw last year and really enjoyed. Oh, boy, there's Thank been you. a lot going on. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, yeah, we were off Broadway last year at the Daryl Roth Theater. And now we are not only taking the show on the road with ourselves, with Groove Lily performing it, um, but the show is also being licensed by other people to do by a great company called Theatrical Rights Worldwide. And uh, for anybody out there listening to this podcast that would like to come and see Striking 12 during this holiday season. Can I take a moment and yep. tell you what cities we're going to be in? Sure. We, okay. This is not the licensed version. We're talking about no. Groove Lily going out on tour to play it for the people all across the nation. <laughs> uh, and this starts uh, from late October through uh, the end of the year, pretty much on weekends. We're going to be in the following cities. Tacoma, Washington, St. Louis, Missouri, Reading, Pennsylvania, Huntingdon, Pennsylvania, College Station, Texas, Burlington, Vermont, Portsmouth, New Hampshire, and then we are going to finish up uh, right here in New York City at the Zipper Theater between Christmas and New Year's. We'll do four shows, including New Year's Eve. So I hope you can join us for those. The licensed the version <laughs> is... is Somebody's translating it into Korean, and they're doing it in, in Korea. And that's possibly the last thing I ever expected Striking 12 to have happened to it. But it's so thrilling. I, I want to go to Seoul, yeah. but I don't think we can make it. Um, but yeah, the, the licensed version is for 3 to 12 actors, uh, and we, we expanded the orchestration. It's now up to as many as, as six musicians. And the premise is the same, though, and I think one of the things that people are responding to when they see the licensed version and they, they bring it into their community theater or their, their amateur theater around the country um, is that the, the, the core of the piece is the same. It's, it's a group of people on stage with very little scenery um, and our town style. They're, they're all just coming together to tell a story. And the meta-theatricalness of it still works because it's set in New York City and it's set in Denmark in 1848 and it's also set in the room where in the performance space at the moment that the performance is happening. So it's it, it still works on those three levels. Um, I think... Th uh, the and it's the holiday musical for people who are just fed up with holiday musicals. I have to... There you go. <laughs> entertainment. Yeah. That's what I felt last year. It was like, I, I, I'm so sick of seeing, uh, you know, uh, Dickens, you know, Christmas Carol done over and over and Christmas Carol in the round and Christmas Carol, yeah. you know, the dinner <laughs> theater and Christmas Carol, you know, Carol done with cartoons. I'm, it's just, ah, oh, something new. And this was like... Yeah. Well, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm 
that's that's kind of why we wrote it. Um, we got some flack last year from some reviewers who thought that we weren't uh, like anti-Christmas Carol enough. I guess they they took they took issue with with the way that our production of Striking Twelve was was uh, branded. But the fact is, while it is an alternative to a Christmas Carol, at its core, it's still it's still a holiday story about people who are who are disconnected from the world around them and who are trying to find a way to become reconnected. So it's still a heartwarming story. It's just it's a heartwarming st- story told in a completely different way. Well, we played two songs last year with it. Do, do we want to play another one from the show this year? Sure. Remind people, give them a taste. Happy to. Uh, I think this one is the first song that the little match girl... No, this this is not the first one, but it's the second one. She's selling her matches in the snow, and no one is buying. And this is a song about her being stuck. She can't... It's called Can't Go Home, Can't Go Home, Can't Stay Here. And she's Stuck colder. in a situation she can't get out of. Can't exactly. go home, can't stay here. Street of a stone, house of tears. Blue with cold, or black and blue. drink I can tell exactly what you're feeling Well, don't you want to know what I think There's gonna be somewhere out there better than this place There's gonna be someone with some kindness on their face I will find a way Yes, I will find 
So basically, we've got today in New York, tomorrow Korea, the rest yep. of the world is coming. And some killer theaters around the country. There's this this really innovative, cool theater in Cincinnati that's doing it. Um, mm-hmm. the, the New Stages Collective. There's uh, the Prince Music Theater, where we first did it way back in the day in 2002. They're, they're doing the licensed version. Um, There's a high school in Tampa that's going to do a giant cast, the, you know, the entire class on stage and uh so they've that been pestering us for years like trying to get us to let them do it and we finally have a version that <laughs> that they can license and they are thrilled I, I think it's going to be a really fun version to see it with a lot of people you know one person gets the part of the answering machine hey mom i'm the answering machine and striking 12 and uh we've broken it down with a uh, with the help and collaboration of rachel schenken our our collaborator uh to to be kind of as big as you want to get yeah so to this this season you'll have three person productions all the way up to you know 25 or so. Have you heard of anybody who's trying to do it your way where the people actually play and sing? And, and Apparently, the Korean version is a five-person cast, and they, they said to us that they've cast the Korean version of me. So there's a violinist who sings <laughs> and plays the parts that I play. And I think they've split out Brendan's part into two, yeah. and same with Gene. So there's going to be a drummer, keyboard player, actors, and the Korean Val. The Korean Val. There aren't too many people out there who <laughs> play violin and sing and act at the same time. So she's. But if you're going to find them, Korea, which is yeah, such yeah. A, a growing, wonderful educational place for string players and violinists. There are a lot of great violinists there. Yeah. So, all right. I hope it. Hope it's a good show. I bet it will be. Well, Brandon Milburn, Valerie Rigoda with Groove Lily. I thank you so much for stopping by and talking about um, uh, Little Midsummer Night's Music on mm-hmm. PS Classics and Striking 12 on PS Classics as well. Hope people pick up the CDs, catch the show, license the show, put on the show, everything, and hope you have another great year. Thank, thank you, you so much, Michael. Have, great a, have a great holiday. On the positive side. Hey, this is Marty Cooper. Uh, once again, on the positive side, although I don't have a lot of positive stuff to talk about tonight, I had the pleasure of being at Brian Stokes Mitchell's concert last week at Carnegie Hall. I know Michael spoke to uh, Aaron's and Flaherty last week, and uh, it's just a coincidence that Heather Hadley came out and did On the Wheels of a Dream with Brian. Watching that number, you think to yourself, this is why I go to the theater. A couple of other high points was uh, These Are My Friends from Sweeney Todd. Done the way it's done in the show, including the ending, At Last My Right Arm is Complete Again. All the drama, all the lighting, everything. Just a fantastic show. Another number actually brought me to tears a bit uh, from Floyd Collins, How Glory Goes, about a man who's... Well, if you're into theater, you know the story about a guy stuck in a mine and uh, he's just left to die there. And he's contemplating his own death. 
and that he can't move from the spot he's in, and uh, his life and death. It was such a great dramatic moment. In any case, my wife and I had a wonderful, wonderful time, and I know those of you out there listening uh, who saw the show probably felt the same way. Uh, you can't really have a negative thing to say about it. That's the good news. I have a few things that have made me kind of unhappy this week. Friends of ours uh, found a coupon in the paper for the Roundabout Theater's Pygmalion. It got kind of mediocre reviews, but one of my favorites, Roma Torio, was reviewing it yesterday morning, and she was uh, she actually gave it a good review. She thought that Claire Danes was fantastic. She said it's, it's kind of a career-defining role for her. And uh, I was thinking friends of ours were going down to the city, and they were going to pick up tickets for us for a future date, and I was kind of happy to about the prospect of seeing it. Well, our friend called us in the afternoon and said they were at the box office and uh, they presented the coupon and the people at the box office informed them that the coupon had been revoked. And they're going, huh? Well, in any case, actually on the bottom of the coupon it said, company has the right to revoke this at any time. And I'm thinking, I don't want to see this anymore. Even if I got it at the half-price box office, I don't want to give them my money. I just think it's totally wrong. Prices for tickets are high enough. And I think theater is becoming totally a rich man's sport. Unless you get these coupons, and probably the majority of people that buy tickets for theater are buying them with coupons, unless it's really a special event. I was surprised to find out that when Billy Elliot gets here next year, the top price is going to be $135. And I thought to myself, huh? This is kind of high. I saw it in London. I saw it twice. And true, it is one of the one of the best shows I've ever seen. It's just done right in every way. But there are no big stars, and there probably won't be any on Broadway. It usually has a few really talented children that dance their hearts out. But $135, it will be impossible for a lot of people to go and see it which is very unfortunate. I mean, you figure a family with three kids and between paying for them and the wife and the parking and the meal, that's a $1,000 night, which is unfounded in my book, in any case. Another thing I have to talk about is the possible pending strike, although from the way they're talking now, I don't think it's going to happen. I would like to know if we formed a brotherhood of theater goers Everyone decided not to buy tickets for two weeks, not to go to a box office, not to go to a website, not to call, not to mail, not to anything. How the theater would make out then. I think we are actually the most important workers in the theater. I think the audience is what makes the theater happen, and they should be a little more giving to the audiences. I'm not sure which side I really agree with. I kind of toss it around. I think to myself, uh, well, I'm a manager of a store, and I, I, I always think that you use somebody when you don't need them, so you have them when you do, and I find that that's a good rule to go by, and that's exactly what I think the league is fighting, that they only want to use people they need to load in a show. In any case, I, I find that the price of theater is going up, and kind of the quality is going down. The orchestras are getting smaller. I mean, we were talking about Aaron's and Flaherty. Ragtime used a 29-piece orchestra. The last two remaining large orchestras on Broadway are The Lion King and Phantom of the Opera. After they're finished, we'll have, we'll have 19 people or under in the orchestra pit. 
and it will f sound tackier and tackier. And this is what you're paying a high price for. I think theatergoers should strike, and let's see what they would do then. Well, in any case, I haven't been that positive this evening. If you have any opinions on what I had to talk about, uh, you can email me personally at broadwaymarty at aol.com. Until next week, at least try to stay on the positive side. On the Positive Side is brought to you by The Colony, online at colonymusic.com or in the heart of the theater district at 49th and Broadway. You can always say, I found it at The Colony. Well, I'm having fun here in the tickets booth in Times Square, and we are at the end of Act 1 for Volume 134. But hey, don't stop now, or wait till next week, since this is an every other week thing. But we've got Act 2, and we got a lot of great stuff in there, including that interview with the entire touring company of Sweeney Todd. And we've got the Coyote Rep online uh, sound plays. Plus, we've got more people here in the tickets booth. Uh, news, top of the trades, and a lot more. So... Uh, my name is Michael Gilbo, and I will see you in Act Two. All the boys. A little more about our brand new theater and business arts major. I know what most theater programs are like, and I've talked to thousands of artists. All of this told me that a new style of theater major was needed. Theater majors can get a pretty good arts education just about anywhere, but most programs do very little to prepare actors, directors, playwrights, technicians, producers, etc. to manage their careers. When you go into the arts, you are your own business, and you need to manage that, to strategically plan for your career to grow. If you've listened to many of these interviews, you know you need to be self-starters to create your own opportunities. I'm going to make sure you are ready for that world. You'll get a ton of opportunities as an undergraduate. Actors will act, even as freshmen. Designers will design shows right away. Playwrights will see their shows mounted. Directors will direct. Producers will handle shows from inception to execution. Outstanding guest artists will conduct workshops, and outstanding students will even work on this podcast and travel to New York with me for interview weeks. And, if that isn't enough, we've got an amazing program that will pay all or part of your student loan payments, even private loans, if you are earning less than $40,000 six months after graduation. That is an invaluable option that lets you pursue your passion in theater with less financial pressure. If interested, and I hope you are, Go to broadwaybullet.com. I'd love to help you launch your career.